listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, Episode 108. Today, mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with Robin Frey, founder of Good People Dinners, to discuss how we can understand and embrace various forms of fear, given the current state and the emotional effects of the global pandemic, and how fear has been embedded into our everyday consciousness. Raman shares intimate stories about how he's dealt with fear as an athlete, as a corporate athlete, and throughout life. It's not about ignoring fear or being fearless. It's about learning how to embrace your fear and being a bad, quote-unquote, host for it. You're interested in a full-body resistance training system to achieve your athletic and fitness goals? The Mass Suit from Juke Performance is your answer. The Mass Suit is a full body resistance training suit that you wear during your exercising or sport specific training to enhance your speed, strength, power, agility, and endurance. You are fully mobile and it's great for plyometric and high intensity training. It engages all muscle groups simultaneously and increases to a 50% caloric burn. Check out the Mass Suit at jukeperformance.com and other fitness-related products, and make sure to use the promo code GRANTPAR, one word, G-R-A-N-T-P-A-R-R, for your 10% discount. Hey, Raman, how are you? Good, Grant. Thanks for having me on your show. Man, I'm, I'm really excited uh, not only to talk about the, the subject that we're going to be talking about and just the time that we're in uh, as a as a world as a society, but just for my listeners, you know, Raman and I go way back. I've I've man, I think I've known you for over fifteen, sixteen years, and it's an honor to have you on my show because I've always been fascinated by by your mind, by your leadership, and if and you know, I've said this many times to you that I've always fascinated, intrigued by your vernacular. So um, to have you on my show uh, to kind of pick your brain on on this thing that we call fear. And fear is so huge. Um, it's a word that we can look at it in, in different angles and ways. And I think what we're going through right now with this pandemic, you know, there's a lot of fear going on. So we're going to look at fear today, not only with what we're going through as a world, but we're going to look at fear um, from an athletic perspective, also fear in the workplace. So I'm really excited to, to see where our conversation goes today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I, I'm interested in this topic too. And Obviously, the pandemic is on everyone's mind. Uh, as of yesterday, the governor uh, imposed a shelter-in-place uh, uh, order for the entire state. So 40 million people right now are all sitting in, in our homes, uh, many of us alone. So that's, that's a pretty intense environment. And often, for a lot of people, it's going to generate a lot of fear. Right. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I, and I think, you know, as I you know, as I stick to the consistency and the continuity of, of my show, you know, about ment- mental toughness, I know that right now there's a lot of us that we need to kind of tap into our mental toughness through this time. And, you know, and before we get in, into talking about fear and what we're going through, um, I, I, I love asking this question and I can't wait to hear it from you or hear your answer about mental toughness or being mentally tough. So when you think about mental toughness, uh, what does that mean to you? It's a great question, and it's definitely something I've thought a lot about. Um, you know, I think of like that that Tiger Mom book and these concepts of grit and this uh, very American 
idea of the rugged individualist, right? Like that cowboy who all by himself doesn't need anyone, doesn't need anything, all by himself can conquer all the odds and survive and protect and stands for these ideals. And I think that that sort of archetype's super functional in our culture. Like it's especially for men, but I think for a lot of people, that model of grit is everywhere. Uh, it's fed to us through movies, through media, even through advertisements. And maybe it's a little bit on the wane, but the one of the the big realizations I had, I think maybe in my twenties, was for most of us when we are attempting to act from a place of mental toughness or grit, what we uh, are mostly doing, in my experience, is pushing fear aside, and uh, again, sort of from experience in meditation, when we push, when we grasp something and pull it in, or we push something away, that feeling tends to intensify. And so for, uh, in a lot of contexts, and I'm going to definitely include myself in this, when I was performing what seemed like toughness in actually what, what I was doing was avoiding Mm. Um, but I, but I do think, I do think there's such a thing as mental toughness and mental toughness actually comes in my opinion, from a place of minimizing resistance. So, you know, when we can drop in with things completely as they are and accept them completely as they are, then we can make choices that tend to be closer to optimal. When some kind of stimulus, something happens in the world and we become aroused, right? Like that's deep. That's our, that's our limbic brain. That's our lizard brain. That's our amygdala saying, hey, survive. Pass on your genes. <laughs> <laughs> right? when, that, when that happens, we really do have a choice. Uh, but, but in order to have a choice, we, we have to practice. So there's a lot of practice. I know this is something you're actually very good at and that you train athletes in. If you practice that moment of fear, when it arises, you can kind of greet it as a friend. Oh, hi, hello, I was expecting you. You can feel it in your body without resisting it. And you can operate from a place where you won't make poor choices. Because mm. right? most of us, like you were saying before we started recording here about being locked in a room with a tiger, that is a context almost nobody faces anymore. <laughs> right. Right now, there's a ghost tiger here in my house, which is the, the COVID-19 virus. Right. But it's, it's not the same. Well, you know, it's, it's funny when you talk about when resisting it, right? Um, there's something that I, what I talk about with, with performers, whether if you're an athlete or you're in the workplace, I talk about, you know, conquering the emotional hurricane. And so when you're dealing with fear, when you're dealing with pressure or chaos, whatever it is, stress, you know, for me, you know, the, the image that comes up for me is this emotional hurricane, whether if that is internal or external, you know, the goal is to, to get in the middle of it and in the eye of the hurricane. And so what happens in the eye of the hurricane, it's calm. And so when yeah. we just like when we like what you're saying, just greet it and, and the way that we can greet it and embrace it and not resist it is to get into our breath. And I think as much as that's really easy for me to say, 
And I know that everybody has a different perspective and, and background and story right now with, with COVID-19. But I think regardless what our circumstances are, we have to, if, if we're going to actually get through this, we have to actually get really present and we got to get into our breath and we've got to actually allow ourselves to get in our breath so we can make the best decisions for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, it, I'm sure this has come up on some of your other podcast episodes, but I'm reminded of that quote from Viktor Frankl when he said, you know, between stimulus and response, there is a space and in that space, our power to choose our own response. Uh, in our response lies our growth and freedom. Mm. You know, and so, yeah, opening up a little gap. I, I really like what you, what you talked about with the hurricane. That, that's a great <laughs> metaphor. And it does really hit you that way sometimes. You're just swept up in reacting, right? And, yeah. and you're, not, you're, not actually, you're not actually, you know, you step out of all of those systems of causation. You could probably, you can do all kinds of things that are totally unpredictable and sometimes even like unprecedented. And they can, they can, you know, they can produce really novel results. So, yeah, I think about this a lot. I love it. Well, I love it. Well, and, and I want to, I want to ask an, another straightforward question uh, with regards to fear. And, you know, when, when I ask questions like, what does mental toughness mean to you? And what is fear and love and joy? These are words that in society uh, or in our world, we all know what they mean. However, because they're so broad, we all have our own different uh, internal representation. We, we see it differently. And, and it's funny when you think of the word mental toughness, I've had 115 episodes, almost every single person has given me a, a different answer. So, so with the word, yeah, it is fascinating. So with the word fear, you know, and I want to get, just kind of get more intimate with where you're at with it, with that word. Mm-hmm. What is fear? Sure, yeah. yeah. What does it mean to you? And, and what's your relationship with fear? You know, I was thinking about this a little bit before we started, and my simplest definition of fear is pushing something away in order to feel safe, mm. right? And so you can have you can have a, a broad spectrum here uh, from immediate, right, like intense, your body is in fight and flight, fight or flight, and these are the kind of experiences, for instance, that that I had, and they were great teachers that I had when I was rock climbing a lot. Um, I've done a lot of rock climbing, a lot of mountaineering. And, you know, we had all kinds of jokes we would use when you were up on a big wall, traditional climbing, placing your own protection. Uh, for instance, uh, I remember I tended to uh, get get the Elvis, the Elvis leg. And, like, what that <laughs> meant was one of my legs started shaking because I was that scared. I lost control of my leg. I didn't piss myself, thankfully, mm-hmm. but I was, I was scared enough that my legs were shaking and it so honed the world. You know, I think of uh, Mahai, Chikchen Mahai and that book flow. It so narrowed my focus to the point where I'm not going down. And the only thing that exists in the entire universe is my next movement. Maintain three points of contact if possible. And am I going to move my right, my left arm, my right leg, or my left leg, even though I'm shaking? And so that's one kind of fear. It's super visceral. It's an incredible teacher. If you can find context, that edge is different for every person. But if you can find a context that brings you right up there where you get your Elvis leg or whatever that response is and gently work with it, gently work with one 
move after that sets in. It's very powerful. I came back from some of those, you know, one of the more extreme ones, we were up at Lover's Leap. Uh, there's like a two-pitch climb and then a three-pitch climb. And for rock climbers who are listening to this podcast, you might even know it. It's a, a very exposed, relatively easy 5.7 called uh, Corrugation Corner. And I had climbed it before and I was leading it. And we were uh, we had just finished the second pitch of the upper part. And we were wedged in a chimney and a huge storm moved in because I was inexperienced. We were on the rock way too late in the day. And there was hail and lightning and rain. And I was seeing more lightning strikes than I've ever seen in my life. You know, we're at about 6,000 feet, give or take. And it was very viscerally a lot of fear. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I wedged back into this chimney, which is just a very wide crack in the rock. My climbing partner, Danny, was below me and we were attached to each other. We knew there was a party below us, which was the father and son making their way up and suddenly that chimney became a waterfall so i was getting drenched the temperature dropped 20 degrees i was getting soaking wet we were covered in metal and then boom i thought a very large boulder had hit my head and what had happened actually it also felt like sticking your finger in a socket what had happened was the water running there had been a lightning strike above us and it had run down through the water and it had electrified us I mean, I, we got struck by lightning Wow! and, uh, you know, my next thought was, uh, I've, I've heard of this, my heart might be stopped. <laughs> so I, I, I reached my wrist down. I said, Danny, do I have a pulse? <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, do you have a pulse? And like, we're like, okay, we're both still breathing. We both still got a pulse. And, uh, I will happily admit I, I then pretty much panicked. Uh, I was already feeling a little hypothermia. I'd been struck by lightning. I said, I'm even in the middle of the storm. I am leading this last, last pitch. So we can get the hell off this mountain. And I did. I got to the top. I set up the worst top anchor of my life. I kind of lasted the rope around a big boulder. Uh, I was not super safe. but I And I started to belay Danny up. Uh, and I had climbed in this storm, and it was not easy. Uh, I belayed Danny up, and he's trailing two ropes. The two ropes he's trailing is the father and son that were below us. So I'm already hypothermic. So now we have to belay the two of them up. So we get them up to the top. They all took off their clothes, put them all on me. So now I look like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man with like six or eight layers of soaking wet clothes because I'm hypothermic. And we all jog the long way around on a trail back to the parking lot. And I remember I laid down on, on the ground in the parking lot. It was now bright and sunny. The storm had passed. And I instantly fell asleep. It was like my adrenal gland was completely emptied. I had given everything I had. And I, I, went, I went into like a coma on the ground in the parking lot. I remember how nice and warm the asphalt felt. And, you know, when I came back, it was a long anecdote, but when I came back to the city, I wasn't afraid of shit. Right. We were having, we were having the challenges in our business at the time. I, I owned an art gallery for 10 years it, it, it's a, any fear-inducing thing in that was like nothing. Right. <laughs> and so, so you know, uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that your listeners go out and put themselves in mortal danger. Right. But there's, there's, there's a lot of safe ways you can, you know, you can go ride a roller coaster. For some people, that probably takes them right up to the edge. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways, pretty safe, 
to bring yourself to the edge of that fear, to work with it. And then all the other speculative fear, which is kind of the second kind, is for me at least, it was radically diminished. Mm. Right? Like, like why worry about our P&L three months from now? It's not lightning hitting me in the head. Exactly. You know? Well, you know what I love about the story is that, you know, when we talk about the different, and you and I were talking about the different kinds of fear out there, right? There's like the life-threatening, dangerous fear, and there's also the fear that exists in the future, um, and we'll talk about that in a second. But when you think about what you went through, when, you, when you're actually dealing with your fear, if you want to not to be in the effect of it, you have to get in control, get into your breath, and you have to talk to it. And what I love about what you were doing was you're doing instructional self-talk. So there's motivational self-talk, and there's also instructional. So for you, you had to get back right in the moment, and you had to focus on each movement, each footstep, each, yeah. right? For you to actually stay focused so you can actually control that fear. Now, now again, that fear... At, at first, it wasn't. It was just you were fearful, right? I mean, you're you're high up on a rock, and and you could actually fall and hurt yourself or die. But for the most part, you were, you know, you got support and you got people around you and you got ropes and stuff. Yeah. Then you throw lightning in it, right? So, yeah. what do you, you know, so that's it's a different. So you're dealing with a physical, like the now the aftermath of it. Now there's even more. There's more anxiety mm-hmm. and more panic. Um, yeah. You know, so so I, I, I don't know. I guess the, the question would be, you know, when you're dealing with this real danger fear, I think, I don't know, the, the best part that I, I could give anybody as far as, you know, advice is, is to walk yourself through it, lean into it, yeah. and, and, and have that plan, but walk through it, lean into it. But when you're actually sitting like right now, we don't know what's going to happen. Like there's a lot of what ifs. So this fear of, what if this happens? What if I don't work for the next three months? What if I can't pay my mortgage? You know, what if I can't yeah. service my clients? All the, you know, that kind of fear. How do, how do people deal with that type of fear? Yeah. So that, that speculative fear, or that's so. So first of all, sometimes I like to, I, I think a lot about the incentives that shape our behaviors, and we are swimming normally, not now in this pandemic where everyone has been forced to kind of slow down and reflect, which I think is, you know, a big silver lining. Um, Normally it's faster, 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 more, more, more. Like we have set up a system of incentives that get us behaving that way. And what they do is they completely conflate and intermingle these two kinds of fear. Mm. Right. So, you know, my experience, a lot of professionals, are spending a lot of their time essentially tapped like like all the cortisol is pumping and they are essentially in some low grade level of fight or flight. I mean if you're a salesperson you kind of know this you're only as good as your last quarter, you know. And and so you know, what does that do to us physiologically? What does that do to us in terms of the relationships we have with other people? And you you know I'm working on a book manuscript right now about this concept uh, incentive system design and how might we shape our culture? Because you cannot hand me the economy, right? The economy is a game we made up. It's completely imaginary and it has very real repercussions in the world, but it's a game human beings made up. There was no such thing as in an economy 50,000 years ago. 
right? We lived a more tribal life and we're probably very adapted for that tribal life. So, so that's the other part of the answer to your question is that second kind of fear, that speculative fear, mm-hmm. our greatest adaptation has been our ability to predict and cooperate. And the, the predictions come out of what are called heuristics or rules of thumb. So you can imagine one of our ancient relatives is like, you know, every time when the snow starts to really melt in this particular valley, I'm pretty sure a herd of mammoth is going to come through and we'll be able to get some meat, right? That's predictive. Mm. And then uh, the cooperative aspect is I'm pretty sure they're coming soon and I'm a tiny little human. And even if I have a spirit, I'm the bravest, strongest warrior. There is zero chance of me taking down a, a mammoth. But if I get eight of my friends to coordinate our attack, we could feed the whole tribe for a week. Right. Right. And so, so the prediction of the cooperative, so these, these, this conditioning, right. And this genetic inheritance is still very much alive in us. And we use it all the time, often to great benefit, but sometimes we become a slave to that prediction. That prediction engine starts to throw up infinite reasonable causes for anxiety. And this is why some people have panic attacks, you know? Um, and this is, you know, this is something I'm sure psychologists deal with all the time. I, I'm happy to admit I, I got there, you know, I, uh, I, I got a divorce. I had a young kid. Uh, my business partner and I uh, also broke up and I was having those panic attacks and I, it was because I couldn't see the future and I couldn't be comfortable with uncertainty and the unknown. So I, I think this pandemic moment is another, another possibility for us here in this moment is to think through how comfortable can we get with uncertainty and not knowing what will happen and what kind of future do we want? How, how might we reshape or experiment with different incentives so everyone's not running around frantic, right? And what kind of legacy do we want to leave in the world? Mm. You know, when you read The Regrets of the Dying, most people work themselves into the ground, you know, provide for their family or whatnot, and never gave themselves time to reflect or to focus their energy on what they actually thought mattered most. And so this, it's another gift of this moment. We're all shelter in place in our homes. We can reflect, we can articulate, we can write it down. And we can say, what changes am I going to make in my life to get more comfortable with uncertainty and to leave a legacy in this world that I can be proud of? And, and, I, and I love the legacy part. And I, and I love like, just right now, I think we're all reflecting I think we've all pushed a pause or pushed the pause button right now, which I think as as a world, for some reason, I feel like we're, we're more so connected because of this pause that we were, we're just pausing and we're, and we have to, we're kind of forced to pause, but it's a great pause for me at least. And, and I think the fear of, you know, you know, you and I were small business owners and I think, you know, and a lot of my listeners have heard my story, um, which I'm not going to go to all the details, but because I've gone through so much adversity and so much pain that mm-hmm. I got to a point where, you know, I, I lived, I, I played a small game my, most of my life and, and I lived in fear. And so when I got rid of that and made different choices and empowered myself, 
I allow myself to reignite and redesign myself. So, and I've been living in that paradigm for the last five, six years. So for me to kind of go through that, and I'm just speaking purely from my experience, that I've already thought about, like, I'm okay with starting over. I've already started over multiple times in my life, but I I really started (laughs) over about six months or six years ago. So I think there's a part of me that I get it. There's like, where there's a crisis, there's an opportunity. And, and I've taught myself that. So there's, if I have to really start over with my career and I have to start over doing things differently, man, I'm kind of excited to do that. Um, yeah. You know, so, I mean, there's just, it's a different way of, of looking at this. It's faith, it's faith in your own adaptability, your, your ability to be adaptive to the new context. And it's, it's faith in your own resourcefulness, right? I always admire business people who are like, if I if if success means I make me obsolete, fine. Right? They're not coming from that scarcity mindset, that Carol Dweck. They're coming from that growth mindset. Right. If if I can raise the level of everyone around me, or if I can produce the same value that enhances people's lives, and I'm no longer necessary, I'll find something else. I mean, that kind of confidence is magnetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think to your point. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm willing to say this, I think, again, don't seek out calamity, but if it comes, I do think it often builds depth of character, mm. what we think of as gra- gravitas, right? You have that because of a lot of, you, you had no choice. You had to, you had, you know, resisting what you were going through uh, medically was not an option. So you learn to work with it. Um, and it's made you more resourceful. Right. And I think, I think those are, you know, there's other ways to teach them without putting people through like army ranger training, but <laughs> Holy shit, does army rate. I mean, army ranger training works, right? <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to build a certain depth of character when you haven't slept for days and you're in a live fire exercise. Right. Right. <laughs> well, it's, and it's funny you bring up character cause and this is very uh, timely cause I just, I mean, I've, I've heard this actually, this statement or this quote multiple times throughout my life, but just it came back in my life within the next, I don't know, within the last 24 hours. But adversity doesn't build character. Adversity reveals character. What do you think about that? Um, yes and no. You know, we, we are... I'm going to speak as Americans. I was born and I grew up in this country. It's it's different in other cultures. Right. Um, We believe, essentially, it's a cultural belief in platonic ideals. We believe in a lot, even if you are agnostic or atheist in this country, you walk around with a lot of assumptions about what a person is that come from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And uh, one of those things is that there is this deeper level of your true self, right? The Shakespeare to thine own self be true. And um, in my experience, that is one of our most painful, like we're wrong. We're just flat out. That's a, that's a completely wrong assumption. And there's good news attached to the fact that we are a lot less fixed than we think. Um, if you present people with context where the incentives guide them in the direction of altruism, 
more and more people will become generous and altruistic. If you present people with a set of insist, uh, uh, incentives where the biggest hoarder of resources is the biggest winner and is worshipped as almost like a demigod, you will bring out some not so beautiful behaviors. The people who achieve in a context of those incentives are not going to always exhibit the best behaviors. And so I don't think these things are revealed. I think we have deep, deeply ingrained patterns that begin in our childhood. But I think uh, power corrupts. Ultimate power corrupts absolute, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, we all need to be on our guard and we all need to seek contexts that move us in the direction of behaving in a more aspirational way, right? And, and, and that, takes, that takes discernment. So, so I don't think character is revealed. I think that if, if, if somebody drove up to your house right now and dropped a billion dollars or said, you've been elected president, I my first feeling for you as my friend would be concern. How is Grant going to deal with this new burden of stewardship and responsibility? Right. It, it would no longer be, woohoo, Grant's rich. Let's go out on his yacht. <laughs> right. Right. It would right. be concern for you because I've seen over and over again what big bumps in power or wealth do to people and would do to me too. And I would have to be cautious about that. So, you know, that's that's my feeling about character. Character is actually like relationships. It's not something you can sit back under laurels. It's something that you have to kind of daily cultivate yeah. so that you can deal with those scenarios. You can deal with all your money going to zero and you can deal with, oh, someone just there's a new dump truck of money in my garage. Both can drop us into fear, ironically. Yeah. When, when people become suddenly rich, they become suddenly paranoid of everyone's motives around them. Totally. Especially. I mean, when you when you have a lot of money and it, out, it comes out of nowhere, then there's a the fear of, you know, are people wanting to hang out with me because of my money? Um, is is there always an agenda that someone wants to, you know, have friend friendship with me and, and, and create a kinship because of my money? You know, I mean, it's, yeah, there's there's all these different angles of fear, which to, to me, it's funny, within the line of work that I do, I use this, this acronym for fear, is false evidence peering real. And and I think when you think about that, that like what you were saying, that speculative fear, um, you know, when, when you're in the workplace and, you know, you start creating this story, this narrative that's going to happen in the future. Like if you're going to have a, a hard conversation with a boss or with your boss, you start, you know, it's, you're creating this false evidence that's going to really, it feels real and it looks real, but you're creating that and it's an illusion. It's all happening in the future. But it's, for me, it's like, I just want to get your take on that acronym because, you know, right now with this pandemic, it's like, you know, this, this is real and it can be life threatening, but it feels for me, there's distance. So there is, there's, there's this uh, space that I'm creating this false evidence and there's also this other space that nope, it's it's actually really real. So I don't know. What's your thought on that on that acronym, if you will? I I, I think it's I think it's great. Um, you know, I think uh, philosophically, uh, like a similar thing that I try to do, I try to kind of get back to like the tangible, right? Mm -hmm. So I anxiety comes, right? You know, dropping into your breath 
dropping into your breath can help. Um, but also saying, is it here? Right? I mean, right now we have this sort of invisible enemy that could be surviving for days or weeks on the surfaces around us that could make us very sick or kill us. Or, I mean, you know, again, if you're, you're just being rational and reasonable about it, uh, you know, it's, it's very much disproportionately deadly for older people. So our parents generation, people in their seventies and above, I like to remind myself, you know, where I am, what I'm feeling, what the truth is, you know, epistemologically, like, like what are the percentages? What is, what does science tell me? Um, you know, instead of reading super alarmist articles on social media or the internet, you know, what is the CDC saying right now? Centers for Disease Control. What is the World Health Organization saying right now? Right. So, so again, it, it, I think it really comes down to discernment and I can, I can say what I did as this, you know, I went from, I went very quickly from skeptical that this was a big deal to embracing it as a big deal. And the anxiety I felt, the way I dealt with it was I, this is just the way my mind works. So I have to work with my mind is I started contingency planning. Here are the various ways this could play out. Here are some of the worst case scenarios. What is our plan? Me and my partner, Karen, what is our plan if things go in this terrible direction? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and then I just executed those plans, right? We have a lot of food in the house. I've stored water. You know, if God forbid this goes on for six months and there's an earthquake here in San Francisco, I feel prepared for that. I feel prepared to run for the hills if that becomes necessary. You know, I feel prepared for all of these contingencies and now I'm calm again. Mm. Right. And, and I'm, I know I'm going to do my best, you know, which won't be perfect. Um, you know, th there's a, when you think about the anxiety of like, you know, you're going to go into your, so many of these things feel trivial now compared to a global pandemic, but you know, you're going to go in, you're going to ask your boss for a raise or whatever, right. Or you're going to interview for a job you really want or something like that. And I'm reminded of something that I've learned in many ways from creativity theory, um, which is essentially quantity is creativity's friend. So if you're scared to go on stage, Go on stage a hundred times, get it into your body that making a complete ass of yourself <laughs> and failing on stage is not lethal. In fact, it causes no permanent physical harm of any kind. And after you've done it a hundred times, guaranteed, you will be much more relaxed and much more authentic on the hundred and first time that you go on stage. Right. Or the hundred first time that you get into a negotiation, right? So, totally. you know, I, 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 th I think, I think dropping in and uh, doing it ad nauseum is the best way to get over that kind of anxiety. 
Yeah, man. It's I, I always say repetition equals realization. That the more the more you rep out anything, you get comfortable. Even if it's like what you're talking about, getting prepared. The more that you're controlling the controllables and you're preparing your game plan, you're executing your game plan, and you've thought it through enough times, there's confidence, right? And there's and there's a lack of, you know, then you, you remove the anxiety. And it's funny, as you were speaking, like, brings me up to uh, a conversation I had with my mentor right when I started what, you know, my profession now as a mental performance coach. And I remember, like, I was sharing a lot of fear. And... And it was a fear of a lot of stuff. It was a fear. Uh, it was just fear of the need of looking good for you know versus the fear of looking bad. And and yeah. and, and I was sharing with him some stuff, and he was just like, like he literally like he stops me, and goes, "Dude, dude, listen, listen." <laughs> and, and like, and he looks at me, he's like, "Are you in danger?" And he says it with this tone. And I said, "Well, no." He's like, "Is your life? Is it life threatening right now?" And I said, "No." Are you gonna die? I'm like, no. And he goes, what? What the fuck are you fearful of? And I looked yeah. at him. I'm like, Haha, okay, I get it. <laughs> the answer to that question was yes. I am in mortal danger. Still, your best response will come not out of fear or panic. Like right. we 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 have a lot of rationales for why fear is a good thing and fear is your friend. Right. In my opinion. We should be extremely rude hosts to fear. We should neglect fear, right? Mm -hmm. Fear is not our friend. Caution, preparedness is, is, a, is our friends, right? If fear wants to come into the tea house of your mind, say, oh, please have a seat. Keep all the doors open, right? Come back 30 minutes later. Oh, sorry, I forgot to give you tea. Right? Be a shitty host to fear, <laughs> and fear's power diminishes. Right? I, th I think this is one of the purposes of uh, comedy, is to defang fear, to render it somewhat inert. I think, uh, you know, the best comedians uh, rob death of its ability to riddle our lives with anxiety, mm. you know? And when I think of someone like that, I think of specifically Robin Williams. Right. He was really good at that. Totally. But what, what you're saying though, as far as the way that you, the way your relationship with fear and how to deal with fear, is that different from being fearless or is that, is that being fearless? Yeah, that's a good question. And again, that's actually a, again, I think a real source of confusion for people in our culture. Um, I've never met a fearless person and I've never been fearless. There are simply different strategies for working with fear when it arises. Um, and we're kind of tiptoeing around meditation and a lot of sort of meditation practices around fear. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm reminded. So when I was, when I was 22, I was a student in the Antioch uh, University Buddhist Studies Program in Bogaya in India. And I was, you know, m most of us on the program had never been to the developing world. 
and maybe there were 40 or 50 of us, and we were living at what's called the Burmese Vihar. It was a pilgrim's rest house in Bodhgaya, which is sort of, Bodhgaya is kind of the birthplace of Buddhism. So it's a, a pilgrimage spot for uh, people from all over the world. And we, you know, we lived a semi-monastic life. We, we took the first 10 vows, and, you know, we got up very early. We did silent meditation, silent breakfast. We did meditation several times a day. We studied philosophy. We did all this other stuff. And we had some wonderful teachers, a lot of wonderful teachers, people who changed the course of my life in dramatic ways. And one of my teachers there was a guy who has since passed away. It's a Sri Lankan Buddhist teacher named Godwin Samadavatne. And with Godwin and uh, a Bengali guy named uh, Anagarika Manindraji, we did a whole lot of what's called vipassana. So if your listeners have heard of mindfulness meditation, things like this, a lot of this comes out of the vipassana tradition um, uh, of Buddhism. And once we had done that for a while, uh, vipassana really means like opening yourself up. You, you have shamatha, which is focusing your attention on your breath or focusing it on a candle flame, focusing in on a narrow spectrum of stimulus. And vipassana is opening yourself to all of the sense doors, including thoughts. And so after we had done this for a while, you get this very euphoric feeling. You feel hyper aware of your environment. It, it, for me, the way I would describe it is being attentive to several sense doors at the same time. You realize that all of our lives were, were kind of only focused on one sense, right? We're only smelling, we're only seeing, we're only uh, absorbed in the thought. This practice kind of opens you up. And then he said, okay, we're going to do something different today. This is right towards the end of our several weeks of practicing with them. Today, we're going to have a monster party. And everybody in the room, of course, chuckled, right? right? Like you just did. And we were all like, okay, what the hell is this? <laughs> and he said, think of who or what you are most afraid of now. And we did. And, it, and he, he led us to this presentation where we invited them. That's really where I borrowed that metaphor I just used for the tea house. We invited them into our home. We invited in the thing that caused us the fear. And so for me, or maybe hate or neg a strong negative emotion, and for me, this was my stepfather who was already deceased. And so I very vividly invited him in. And then I was a shitty host. <laughs> and, he, and he got bored, and he eventually left. And as he was walking out the door in this visualization, I said, look, you, you come back whenever you want. The door is always open to you. I'm not going to try to lock the doors anymore. And, and that was it. It was very cathartic and this torturous thing I'd been locked into in my mind and in my emotions was done, which was a surprise to me. And it was done because the trigger of that fear was no longer a thing I was pushing away. Right. Right. So it's similar in psychology to like exposure therapy. You have a phobia about spiders you, gener gen you know, gently, gradually build until eventually you can have a spider in your hand and not lose, not lose it, right. right? But maybe the first step is you just see a video of a spider for five seconds. Totally. So, 
anyway, that's the monster party story. Well, it resonates with me, and I've and again I've shared this and and been vulnerable <clears throat> with my story. Um, but it's more or less with belief systems, and it and it's you know I spent decades with the belief system of me not being smart enough, but it, that whole mm. thing came from fear. Like you know when I'm having a conversation with somebody, and you know. I feel like they're smarter than me or I'm trying to articulate and they're like, they're not getting it instantly. Like this fear comes up that, uh, the fear of not looking good. Right. Um, mm. and so I spent or like inadequacies of to- some kind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. that, that fear, man, that, that riddled me for forever. And when I got to a point in my life where I'm like, I had to, I totally understand what that trigger was, but I was done with that trigger and I had to reframe it. And I, and I literally, you know, this is just, uh, you know, we're talking about different parts of fear here, but uh, in dealing with fear, but I literally had to sit there and go, I have a master's degree. I've written a book. I have my own company. I played the hardest position in all of sports. How the fuck am I? Why, am I stupid? Well, no. <laughs> you know, I'm like, gee. Right. So I had to like get to a point where, and then, and I, and I literally had a, you know, a mental image of, for me, at least, it was flushing it. I, I had to just flush that, you know, and there's all these other mental images that you can use, like, you know, uh, using scissors or, you know, taking, you know, you know, when you take your file into your trash bin on your computer, like that sound of deleting, totally. you know, so yeah. but for me, it was flushing. And, um, and man, because I've let that go and I don't have that fear anymore, I don't have that belief system, I've created so much more yeah. space now. Oh, that's great. You know? Oh, that's really great, man. Yeah, I... I... I think what you just described is so universal. And if it's not, I'm not smart enough. It's I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not accomplished enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not whatever it was, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, what a world we could live in if more of us could just put it down and just be enough. Right. Yeah. Uh, It's also what you just described is in my experience, the, one of the strongest impediments to learning people are so focused on not appearing foolish um, and not giving themselves permission to ask questions or take risks or stand out or be silly. You know, I mean, I've, I've studied a lot of languages in my life and it's really driven home that adage that the fool learns fastest. If you can ask the stupid question, ask a hundred stupid questions, but be really engaged, uh, you're going to absorb a lot of material. You're going to find yourself speaking six languages overnight. Uh, and I know this is true regardless of, you know, we have different capacities where we are unequal in some ways in terms of our ability to learn. But I did a, a Chinese immersion, a German immersion, and a French immersion in college. Everyone who stuck with those classes, those totally immersive classes where you were forced to be foolish and stand out and say the wrong thing and make mistakes, everyone spoke those languages by the end of those programs. Wow. You know, not like a, not like a native speaker, but good enough. And, 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 you know, I had taken seven years of public school Spanish, and it is still my crappiest language after, you know, th- those other ones. Because we weren't, it wasn't hurling you into the unknown, right? That's, that's really, that's, that's, I think, you know, I wrote a piece on this leap and the net will appear. 
which is a quote, I can't remember from whom, but essentially there are contexts in which hanging back and analyzing and being thorough is the wisest course of action. Those are the minority of contexts. In the majority of contexts, we are best served by being decisive, even if it's the wrong decision, by hurling ourselves over the banister into the unknown. Um, and, and we've just generally set up such a risk-averse culture that, that, that what I just described is, is difficult to unthinkable for a lot of people. We, we all suffer from some degree culturally from analysis paralysis. A hundred percent. And, and I'm, I'm literally going to quote my, my mentor, Grant Betchart, because um, he's, I believe he coined this, this phrase, but he always says victory goes to the vulnerable. And, and that's what you're exactly. talking you know, and that's, that's yeah. it, man. You, we got to be vulnerable and be willing to show up and trust ourselves, you know? And yeah. it's funny too, when you're bringing up here, uh, before we close out here, but you were bringing up people don't want to be look like they don't want to be in a position where they're looking foolish. And, you know, our good friend, John Stallnocker, man, he taught me a lesson a long time ago that it's about owning it. Like he goes, own your silliness, own your crazy shirt, own your crazy hairstyle for the night. He goes, when you own it, <laughs> what happens is that it turns into appreciation and respect. But when you don't totally. own it, then people, they, they run with it. And then you start feeling self-doubt and all these other things that creep in. But man, it was like, yeah. it's all about ownership. And But to get to that point, again, going back to fear, you have to lean into it. You have to trust yourself with your plan and, and, and move through it, move through the fear. But And trust yeah. me, there's been multiple yeah. times where I, he, I was with him and I wore a crazy shirt. And he just, he was analyzing me like at a party. And he would see people's faces and then he just saw the way that I was owning it, and they just kind of moved on. But he goes, dude, if, if you yeah. would have like asked him, like, hey, does this look weird? They would have had a field day on you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Wait, say that again. So victory goes to the vulnerable. Is yeah, that yeah, yep. Yeah, I like that. I, like that. I, I also, like, like the safest place is naked in public. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> and, and it's also something that's kind of been forced on us with the internet right and with the surveillance you know culture like like oh you know you think that you can hide from from being seen on the internet you're wrong what is happening on the internet is a brand is being built about you whether you like it or not right <laughs> yeah. a, a characterization is being built of you whether you like it or not right. so you have two options hide and neglect that or take the reins and shape it. And, and this is this is again something that feels very dangerous and fear-inducing for a lot of people to say, because as a culture we think if I if I say anything about myself, it's self-aggrandizing, it's arrogant, it's narcissistic, and it's not. If you come from sincerity and integrity and curiosity, and you invite people into dialogue, there is nothing narcissistic or damaging that is a that is a an old tired and obsolete piece of cultural baggage and and before we close out if if you were to and, and you've you shared a lot of great things on on this episode but if you were going to leave one thing for my listeners you know through this time that we're this pandemic that we're going through you know to deal with fear um again we're all mm -hmm. dealing with it differently have different you know backgrounds and and dynamics to it but like 
what would be one action plan that someone can actually, you know, use to actually reduce the fear or manage the fear a little bit more effectively? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I mean, I'm in a lot of dialogues right now about actually this topic, basically. And fear can become a, we can continue, we can collapse into our own worry. And I have found a really effective way to gently push out and diminish that anxiety, whether it's true and founded or just speculative, is to be of service to others. So before I think we were recording, you and I were talking about what's happening here in the Bay Area. Here's what's happening. The economy's in free fall. Stock market has taken some of its biggest hits uh, in our lifetimes. And, you know, the word is going around this. This could lead to a, a Great Depression. And it is landing incredibly disproportionately on middle class and working class people. You know, my friends who are collecting paychecks from large companies or tech companies are fine. Uh, You know, I run events for a living. It's one of the main things I've been doing. Uh, All events are canceled. All of my independently produced events are canceled. All of my corporate clients immediately called, canceled their contracts, asked for money back. I have zero source of income. Even the Airbnb side income we had has mm. gone to zero. Right. Right. And so I'm, I'm hustling. I am not, I'm still not in the worst position. When, when I look around me, the chefs that I work with, you know, the clean, the cleaners and the restaurant crew, the venue people, all of these other people, all their revenue also to zero. No savings. These, are, these people are living hand to mouth. So my advice to people is if you find yourself in a position of privilege and you're still collecting a paycheck, go on Patreon, support a few people you know or who you admire or who you uh, value what they contribute to quality of life where you are. Support a farmer. Right? Go to farmer's markets. They're actually saying that going to farmer's markets might be a little bit safer than going to supermarkets, and we've all got to eat. Um, just see how you can be of service to people and lift those people up, because th- this so far, this pandemic has been a massive accelerant of wealth inequality. And it really, it really worries me, and you're going to have a pretty hard time feeling sorry for yourself and, and wallowing in fear if your focus is on helping people who are in real crisis. Totally. And, and I've said this my, uh, actually, not my whole life, because it took me later in life to get this um, this perspective, but man, I don't care what role you're in your life. I don't care if you're a CEO, a doctor, you're an athlete. I don't care. The, the best role that you can actually embrace is to be in service. And, and if you really truly want to shift from fear, you want to shift your anxiety, man, Take all that, take all that good energy, and and start serving. And and hopefully, you know, even with this podcast, I I believe that this is part of my service, because I think what you're saying uh, is 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 very helpful and very valuable during these times. And and I I also honor you and, and respect you know your your words and your mindset. But but what you're saying, I think everybody should be in service right now. And I don't care what that looks like. 
you know, redirect your energy, redirect your fear. We're all going to get through this. Um, but again, it might have to, we might have to go through worse times to get to the good. But I think, um, yeah. you know, but if we, if we talk to it, man, if we stay in control and control the controllables, I think we're, we're going to get through this. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Thank you, Grant. I, I really appreciate it, man. And, and I, and, and please take, take to heart what I said earlier. Like, you know, I, the, the difficulty you yourself have gone through, uh, has not gone to waste. You, you really, you really have come out as a, a, a person who deeply cares, who does have depth of character and who really contributes to the well-being of the people around you. So, you know, that's, I, I just really respect you for that. Um, and I think it's a wonderful example to other people who are going through some really uh, serious difficulties. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I've, as I've said, I've respect you and, um, and I want, and I love just the way you, you think, and I want more of my listeners to be exposed to you and connected to you. With that being said, how can they uh, connect with you on social media, learn more about what you're doing, your side projects and learn more about good people dinners? Uh, how can they do that? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, if you want to learn more about me, either as a speaker or uh, an MC or facilitator, uh, you just go to my name.com, ramanfrey.com. Uh, you'll learn a little bit about, um, about things I've written. You'll learn a little bit about the book that I'm, uh, the manuscript, book manuscript I'm working on right now. And uh, you can also see my suggested reading list. There's a lot of books there uh, that have really shaped my thinking. And there's a whole page full of uh, other media, such as podcasts, uh, you know, conferences I've spoken at, things like that. And then for Good People Dinners, it's that's the URL, goodpeopledinners.com. And we are we are currently not hosting events, but when we are, they are all built around meaningful conversations. And the, you know, controversial topics, interesting topics, topics that bring out some compare and contrast, really the heart of civil discourse, which is, I think, a great American virtue, uh, we focus on that. So we have amazing speakers. We tend to work in ho private homes or third venues, interesting places uh, all over the country at this point. We've done them now in New York and Seattle and other places. Uh, and we always have a professional chef and kind of an emphasis on seasonal farm-to-table food. Um, but other than that, there's I just really encourage our chefs to be super creative. We've always got wonderful wine sponsors um, and we, you know, in addition to the dinners we do ourselves, we do a lot of dinners for various corporations that hire us. And then we do retreats. Uh, the next retreat will be a, a mushroom foraging retreat up on Mount Shasta. If, if this crisis passes in time for us to make it up there, uh, and then we'll do a big retreat for the Perseid meteor showers in Nevada in August. So, so those are some of the things that I have, uh, hopefully coming up, although I may have to adapt if, uh, if we're all on uh, house arrest for another six months. But yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, you bet, man. And I just thank you for your time and, and your, your thoughts and your energy. Uh, much appreciated, man. Um, and I can't wait to get this out and, uh, and share it with the rest of the people. All right. Take care, Grant. Thanks again. 